Uh, open your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel, please. We're in chapter 41 as we continue our studies in that wonderful Old Testament prophet. We're going to try and look at all 26 verses of chapter 41 tonight in a study I'm calling Disregarders of the Lost Ark. I invite you to send me titles. I'd be happy to uh, give your lame titles. But anyway... The 1979 Soviet invasion of Afghanistan prompted then-President Jimmy Carter to issue an ultimatum that the United States would boycott the Moscow Olympics if Soviet troops did not withdraw from the country by 12.01 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, February 20th, 1980. The United States was joined in the boycott by a few other countries, including Japan, West Germany, China, the Philippines, and Canada. The United Kingdom and France supported the boycott, but they allowed their athletes to participate if they wanted to. So I'm not quite sure how that worked. Regardless your opinion on the effectiveness of the boycott and regarding patriotism in general, many athletes missed the only opportunity they'd ever have to compete for something they'd trained for all their lives. Ezekiel had missed an opportunity. At the start of our studies, we noted that although Ezekiel was a priest, He was exiled to Babylon before he was of age to actually serve in the temple at Jerusalem. To say it was a disappointment would be an understatement. But now as his visions are concluding and his book is nearing its end, Ezekiel is getting a glimpse of the future temple, the millennial temple, the temple that will exist during the 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ. He saw it before any other Israelite, priest or otherwise. And not only that, he's guided on this tour by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I think it more than made up for his missed opportunity in the 6th century. What is it you and I may miss as we are called upon to serve the Lord? And I'm serious about that because there are sacrifices to be made if you are going to live for Jesus on almost any level. Uh, the, the, just the very fact that you're a Christian requires some level of sacrifice. And there are going to be things that you're going to miss in this life. But rather than stew over them, get depressed by them, you can determine to look ahead to what the Lord has promised you. As we follow Ezekiel on his tour, I can't help but think of the day I will be led by the Lord to the door of the mansion that he's been away preparing for me in a city that he's building for us, made of all the finest and most precious materials in all creation. Every now and then you just need to go to the end of the book of the Revelation and just read the last uh, two chapters and realize that that's the city that the Lord is building for you. And in that city, that beautiful uh, or uh, you know, adorned city, is going to be a personal uh, dwelling place for you, a mansion. It's a thought that has motivated saints for centuries. In the famous Hall of Faith chapter, that's Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham is described as going out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob the heirs with him of the same promise, he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker 
is God. Later in that same chapter, saints are described who, and I quote, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And so that can be the lot of God's people. Uh, and uh, maybe our sacrifice hasn't been as great. Maybe it will never be as great. But all of us face sacrifice. If you're slightly discouraged about your situation, think of Ezekiel's sneak peek as an example of what is waiting for you. These men in the Bible, they're men of like passions with you and I. Uh, and, and I know that I would have been totally depressed if I had trained as a priest and just as I was coming of age to be able to serve in that magnificent temple, I was carried off in exile to Babylon and then the Lord began to speak to me about how the temple was going to be destroyed and I would never get to serve as a priest in that temple. And here now Ezekiel is seeing the future temple and you and I have a, a similar future as well. So... Uh, let it bolster you tonight. And so we begin in chapter 1, or chapter, verse 1 of chapter 41. Then he brought me into the sanctuary and measured the doorposts, six cubits wide on one side, six cubits wide on the other side, the width of the tabernacle. The width of the entryway was ten cubits, and the side walls of the entrance were five cubits on this side and five cubits on the other side. And he measured its length, forty cubits, and its width, twenty cubits. Also, he went inside and measured the doorpost, two cubits, and the entrance, six cubits high, and the width of the entrance, seven cubits. He measured the length, 20 cubits, and the width, 20 cubits, beyond the sanctuary. And he said to me, this is the most holy place. By the way, just to be more biblical, uh, Kenny has instituted a cubit system here at uh, Calvary Hanford. We measure by cubit now, so uh, your, your little... You know, protractors and stuff won't work here. We we have, you know, cubits. Well, you've seen, if you've ever done the chairs, you saw he brings out these little wooden things. You think they're just random, but they're cubits. Uh, so anyway, we're trying to be as biblical as we can possibly be, even behind the scenes. Uh, and so, in the Old Testament tabernacle and later the temple, uh, when the children of Israel were wandering around the wilderness, they had the tabernacle. It was a portable temple, a tent-like structure, and then later on, David's son Solomon would build the first permanent temple. The most holy place, or the holy of holies, as it's sometimes called, was God's special dwelling place in the midst of his people. The most holy place was a perfect cube. Its length, width, and height were all equal to 15 feet. During the Israelites' wanderings in the wilderness, God appeared as a pillar of cloud or fire in and above this chamber. His physical presence was there in that uh, most holy place. A thick curtain separated the Holy of Holies from the most holy place. Uh, this curtain, known as the veil, was made of fine linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. There were figures of cherubim, angels, embroidered onto it. These cherubim were also on the innermost layer of covering of the tent. So if you looked upward, you would see these figures. The word veil in Hebrew means a screen or a divider or a separator that hides. This curtain was hiding and shielding the holiness of God from sinful men. Whoever entered into the Holy of Holies was entering into the very presence of God. The fact, uh, in fact, anyone except the high priest who entered would die. Even the high priest, God's chosen mediator with his people, 
could only pass through that veil and enter this sacred dwelling once a year on a prescribed day, the Day of Atonement. When Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. It signified that the way into the presence of God was open to all through the mediation of Jesus Christ. It's a very simple figure. Uh, Jesus dies on the cross. God reaches down literally and tears the veil in half, showing that it is through Jesus that we can now approach the Father. And so the Lord takes Ezekiel into the outer room, but not into the most holy place. He alone enters that chamber. There's no veil signifying that access to the Lord is always available. The Lord is, after all, on the millennial earth in his, uh, in, physically. People can see Him and interact with Him. But there remains a separation to communicate to non-believers during that time that God is holy. And so only the Lord Himself is allowed in that uh, most holy place. Now, the fact that this person guiding Ezekiel's tour freely enters the most holy place is perhaps, to me, the strongest evidence it is Jesus and not an angel. So if you study this out, some commentators feel that it's an angel. Others say it's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. Uh, and I say that because uh, of, you know, he's called Lord a couple of times. But beyond that, he goes into the most holy place. Uh, and that's reserved for the Lord. Now, next, Ezekiel was shown the room surrounding the tabernacle rooms. We'll begin reading in verse 5. Next, he measured the wall of the temple, six cubits. The width of each side chamber all around the temple was four cubits on every side. The side chambers were in three stories, one above the other, 30 chambers in each story. They rested on ledges, which were for the side chambers all around, that they might be supported, but not fastened to the wall of the temple. As one went up from story to story, the side chambers became wider all around, because their supporting ledges in the wall of the temple ascended like steps. Therefore, the width of the structure increased as one went up from the lowest story to the highest by way of the middle one. I also saw an elevation all around the temple. It was the foundation of the side chambers, a full rod, that is, six cubits high. The thickness of the outer wall of the side chambers was five cubits, and so also the remaining terrace by the place of the side chambers of the temple. Uh, and between it and the wall chambers was a width of 20 cubits all around the temple on every side. The doors of the side chambers opened on the terrace, one door toward the north, another toward the south, and the width of the terrace was five cubits all around. Now what I'm getting from this is that surrounding the temple uh, area itself will be three levels or three stories of side rooms, one above another, 30 on each level. In Solomon's temple, which there are a lot of similarities between Solomon's temple and uh, this millennial temple. Not, it's not completely the same, but there's similarities. In Solomon's temple, these rooms were storerooms for the temple equipment and they were storage chambers for the people to bring in their tithes and their offerings. And that caused me to wonder, will there be tithes and offerings in the millennium? And apparently there will be. And so what does that suggest? Well, mind you, it is the millennium and the Lord will be on the earth and things like streams breaking in the desert will be happening. I mean, the earth will be restored. Um, uh, as far as I can tell, you know, the Lord will be doing lots of wonderful, miraculous things in 
uh, greening the earth and, and just making things beautiful. God really doesn't need anything. We like to say that he's not broke. And so this suggests that giving is important from the perspective of the giver. It's good for you and I to give to God. It's not that God has need. It's, it's good. It's healthy spiritually, we might say. For one thing, giving is healthy because it causes you to get alone with God and take a look at how he's blessed you, how he is caring for you. Then this gratitude that you have toward God will develop into generosity towards his people as you're encouraged to give to his work on the earth. And so, so this area of giving and bringing into God's storehouse and all, good for us, healthy for us. We get to spend time with the Lord, uh, going over uh, his blessings. We uh, find ourselves having a grateful heart. I mean, you can't spend time with God and think about his blessings without having a grateful heart. And out of that gratitude comes generosity towards others and giving towards God's work. Now, Ezekiel next sees a building whose purpose and use remains undisclosed. Verse 12 says, The building that faced the separating courtyard at its western end was 70 cubits wide. The wall of the building was five cubits thick all around, and its length 90 cubits. So he measured the temple, 100 cubits long, and the separating courtyard with the building and its walls was 100 cubits long. Also, the width of the eastern face of the temple, including the separating courtyard, that was 100 cubits. Now, there's conjecture by commentators that this building will be where animal parts that are not part of the sacrifices will be taken in order to be uh, handled until they're disposed of. They get that from the use of the word separating. Uh, it's a separating courtyard. But we're really not told exactly what the purpose of this building will be. Uh, and so all of that is just speculation. Jesus did not feel the need to make a full disclosure of this building to Ezekiel. He's taking him on a tour. He's showing him different things. Uh, and it's pretty detailed. Uh, but he's not told at all what's going on in this building. It reminds me that I will not always be privileged to everything the Lord is doing as he builds in my life. Some things are just going to have to remain a mystery to me. Uh, and some things that I think that the Lord should tell me and that he should make me aware of and, and reveal to me. Uh, it just I don't understand. I look at it and I, it's almost like it's a building and I say, I say, I don't see any purpose for it. I don't see any use for it. The Lord's not telling me the purpose or the use for it. It's just something that exists uh, and, and it's a wonder to me. At many points, therefore, I'm going to have to walk by faith trusting that the Lord knows best for me. Indeed, uh, this is true. All of you, I think, would say this. If the Lord explained some things ahead of time, what he was going to do, where he was going to do it, how he was going to bring it about, you'd just refuse. You'd say, yeah, no, I don't think so. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, ministers always like, pastors, we always like to joke about where we are, you know. And, and so they said, oh, I said, I'd never go to Hanford. I didn't have to say that because I didn't know Hanford existed. <laughs> uh, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, people always say that. Oh, you know, don't say I'll never go someplace because God will send you there. You know, God's not really like that. But, you know, what I'm saying is a lot of times if you knew where God was going to send you. I mean, imagine 25 years ago. Some of you have been around here for a long time. Imagine 25 years ago you're living in Southern California. 
And then all of a sudden you get a, beep, a glimpse of Hanford. This is where you're going. What? No, I'm sorry. That's, that's yeah, I, I don't want to know anything more about that. You know, this, I'm, I want to jump right over Central California and get up to Washington. You know, that's the idea. Some place where it's, you know, I like gloomy. You probably, some of you probably don't like it to be gloomy. You know, people, I try and keep my mouth shut because I don't want to bum anybody out. But all the time I'm around people here during the, oh, it's so gloomy. I go, we can't see the sun. Praise the Lord. I love gloom. I know, you know, I don't like the danger of the fog and all that. You know, I'm not crazy, but uh, it could be gloomy all the time. When I first moved here, it was gloomier. 25 years ago, it was gloomy. Sometimes you didn't see the sun for days at a time. It was, it was great. I loved it. I thought I was in Alaska it's without the snow, you know, and the, and the polar bears. But, uh, you know, so, I mean, so, you know, the point is, I lo- now, I love Hanford, raised the kids here, raising grandkids. It's the greatest place in the world, even in its proximity to Riverdale. But uh, <laughs> why Riverdale? I don't know. It could be Taft. You know, you could pick on Friant. Uh, but Riverdale seems good. It seemed good to me to pick on Riverdale. But uh, anyway, uh, so, but the thing is, if you just get a glimpse of your future, if the, if the Lord... Well, biblical example, Habakkuk, one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, the book of Habakkuk. God is, Habakkuk is crying out to the Lord. He's having a week of prayer. He's doing even one Jerusalem style, you know, and he's saying, hey, Lord, what are you going to do? The people are wicked. We need to repent. How come you're not doing anything? And the Lord says, well, actually, I'm going to do something. But I don't think I should tell you because you're not going to like, tell me, I'm your prophet. You got to tell me. It was okay. The Babylonians are coming. They're going to wipe you out. Hey, No. That can't be right. I want you to do something, but not that. At least Habakkuk had the wherewithal to go up into his tower, he said, and I waited until I could see what the Lord was doing. And if you haven't read the last chapter of Habakkuk in a while, you should. The last few verses are precious. Habakkuk says, I don't care anymore. Everything can fail. You know, the government can fail. The gas prices can go up. Uh, There can be no water in the valley. Whatever happens, yet will I praise Him. Man, that's a tremendous change from, no, please. And so, there's going to be rooms in your life that the Lord builds in that you don't understand. He's not going to tell you what He's doing, because if He told you, you wouldn't like it. And you would resist it. You'd Jonah on Him. You know, we talk about Jones in for something. People say, yeah, I'm Jonah in for something half the time. This is what I want you to do. Oh, no, I'm going the other way. And I'm going there fast, you know. And so the Lord, He knows what He's doing. Now, Ezekiel next saw some galleries. Verse 15, He measured the length of the building behind it, facing the separating courtyard with its galleries on one side and on the other side, a hundred cubits, as well as the inner temple and the porches of the court their doorposts and the beveled window frames. And the galleries all around their three stories opposite the threshold were paneled with wood from the ground to the windows. The windows were covered. From the space above the door, even to the inner room, as well as outside and on every wall all around, inside and outside by measure. And it was made with cherubim and palm trees, a palm tree between cherub and cherub. Each cherub had two faces, so that the face of a man was toward a palm tree on one side, and the face of a young lion toward a palm tree on the other side. Thus it was made throughout the temple all around. From the floor to the space above the door, 
And on the wall of the sanctuary, cherubim and palm trees were carved. Now, these galleries are something like terraced lofts. I admit I'm having a hard time visualizing all this. Maybe you can see it. I'm not good at understanding things from a description like this. I'm lost. What I would note in this section is the carvings. We talked about this in our last study uh, in Ezekiel, but it bears repeating. God is concerned with both function and form. He likes beautiful things and He likes making things beautiful. It's not automatically more spiritual to be a minimalist or to do the very least in order to get by or to be as plain as possible. If you don't have much to work with, you can still do your best with what you have. You can still make it as nice as it can be. If nothing else, it can be clean and neat with everything in proper order. And so I think sometimes we have the idea that less God likes less, that He likes plain, that, that God is kind of vanilla. If you went to Superior Dairy with God, He would order vanilla ice cream. In, in a, and He would send back the you know, anything fancy and say, no, I just, just put it on a napkin because I want to be as plain as possible. Hey, Jesus would chow down. He'd have, you know, whatever goes on over. I haven't been to Superior. He'd have, you know, 15 scoops of ice cream going on. He'd just be having it going on because he likes things to be good and beautiful in that way. Some people who assume less is better, they're just lazy. Oh, that guy's really spiritual. No, he's just lazy. He doesn't want to pick up. He doesn't want to clean up. He doesn't want to get ready. He just shows up and whatever happens, happens. Um, I've done, you know, over the years, uh, not tons and tons of weddings, but I've done a lot of weddings and my share of weddings. And, man, some of the places that people rent for weddings, they're a disaster. People don't sweep. They don't clean. They don't move anything. It's crazy. Uh, it's bad enough, you've got to pay for it, but then it's just, it's disgusting is what it is. And, you know, it, it's terrible. It's just lazy. That's not the Lord. Your mansion and the new Jerusalem, they're going to be top drawer. They're going to be first rate. No detail is going to be overlooked. Until we get there, we should be no less interested in details. I mean, do you really think that when the Lord, you know, gets you to your mansion, He's going to have to jimmy the door because it's warped? Oh, man, you know... I've got to talk to some of my, you know, subs about this. And you finally get in and there's all kinds of garbage in there because they haven't cleaned up yet. They haven't had final cleanup yet. No, it's going to be perfect with everything in its place. Now, we don't have to be crazy about this stuff, but we can do the best that we can do. Now, finally, at least with regard to chapter 41, Ezekiel saw an, saw an altar. Verse 21 the doorposts of the temple were square, as was the front of the sanctuary. Their appearance was similar. The altar was of wood, three cubits high, its length, two cubits, its corners, its length, and its sides were of wood. And he said to me, This is the table that is before the Lord. The, table, or the temple in the sanctuary had two doors. The doors had two panels apiece, two folding panels, two panels for one door and two panels for the other door. Cherubim and palm trees were carved on the doors of the temple, just as they were carved on the walls. A wooden canopy was on the front of the vestibule outside. There were beveled window frames and palm trees on one side and on the other, on the sides of the vestibule, also on the, sides of, uh, on the side chambers of the temple and on the canopies. This altar corresponds to the altar of incense uh, in the Old Testament, by the way. And we need to be careful to make arguments from silence 
But it is interesting to note that a lot of familiar items of temple furniture are not listed. Most notably, you don't see the Ark of the Covenant in the Millennial Temple. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant is seen to be really important to people. There's all kinds of books on finding the Ark of the Covenant. It disappeared from the Jewish temple somewhere before or during the Babylonian invasion that we're seeing here in Ezekiel. Now, lots of theories as to where the Ark might be today. The Ethiopians claim outright that they have it in some little temple that they've got. They, they won't let anybody see it, but they say that's where it is. In Israel, the Temple Institute, it's that group that's replicating the articles for the restoration of the temple sacrifice. They claim they know where the Ark is uh, and, and that in due time they're going to be able to uh, excavate and bring it back out because they think it's important for reestablishing worship in the temple uh, that is going to be rebuilt. Uh, now, quite honestly, I don't think the ark exists on the earth anymore. The ark was probably lost or destroyed when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. If Jews had hidden it, then the ark would have surely been brought out when they rebuilt the temple, which Josephus and other historians say it was not. Furthermore, there's this interesting passage in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 3.16 says, Then it shall come to pass, when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, they will say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made anymore. What do you think about that? That seems pretty clear. This verse comes as quite a shock to some Christians who have assumed that the ark must be found before the tribulation temple can be built. Others have simply assumed the ark would be replaced in the Holy of Holies when the Lord's millennial temple is built. And so I don't expect the ark to be found. At any rate, it won't be in the final temple that is on the future earth because Jesus, the mediator of the new and better covenant, is there. Conceivably, the ark could be discovered. The context of this Jeremiah passage is the millennium. It's not the tribulation. So it doesn't rule out the possibility that it could be discovered. The important point to keep in mind is that the rediscovery of the ark is not essential to anything. The temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel after the Babylonian captivity and there was no ark. The temple Jesus was familiar with, Herod's temple, did not have the ark of the covenant. And so you don't need the ark of the covenant in order to have a temple and temple sacrifice. And so, uh, you know, there's just a lot of differences between this temple and what we're used to, and sometimes we draw our own conclusions about what has to happen, and uh, we really just need to uh, just stay mellow on that. Maybe they'll find the ark, maybe they won't. It seems to me that it's probably been destroyed, uh, and it'll never be found. Now, as we close, in the detailed descriptions and measurements of Ezekiel's vision, we can be reminded of the glories to come for all who belong to God a temple not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, which we shall not merely visit in a vision, but we will dwell in forever. Amen?